what's up everyone? This is episode number 29 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. And this is your host, Kyle, and I hope everyone's had a great week. I hope you guys have been able to pick up cards of the players that you like. Well, everyone's out there blowing their budget on Zion cards or, you know, blasters of contenders or whatever, or, or even Zion potatoes. Now, in case you missed it or you have no idea what I'm talking about, I talked a little bit about Zion Mania on last week's episode. Um, I also posted a few visuals of the whole ordeal on my social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. And uh, a lot of you have been with me for the duration of the show's history. Some of you are still catching up, but throughout these weeks, you've heard me talk about Zion. You've heard me talk about LeBron. You've heard me talk about Curry and some of the bigger names in today's game. Um, I've talked a bit about 60s and 70s sets. I talked about 90s credentials recently. So I'm trying to spread the topics out somewhat and hit stuff from different eras because I don't want to constantly feed you the same stuff and the same players all the time. Now, with that being said, I'm sure some of you have noticed the lack of Jordan content. And I'll admit that this was somewhat intentional. Um, I don't have anything against Michael Jordan, but I wanted to show you some of the other stuff. Um, Now, in the same vein, it would be foolish for me to understate his presence and his importance to the hobby. So um, I do want to bring you some Jordan content. And um, I was chatting a little with Chris from the House of Jordans podcast this week. And uh, I was chatting about something that I heard him say on an earlier episode, which um, he claims that not only is Michael Jordan important to the hobby, but that his cards form the foundation of the card market. Now, obviously, they collect Jordan cards. That's the whole premise of their show, so I wouldn't expect anything less from them. Um, You know, I'm not implying that they're hyping anything either. I think that they're genuinely interested in Jordan cards. You know, if you listen to the their conversation. If you listen to the episodes, that shows. Um, But he says that Jordans are the foundation of the basketball card market and that they're a constant reminder or an indicator of the health of the market. Well, I, you know, I have two main concerns with this thinking, and I I think they're going to address these concerns on their next, next episode. So this could be a fun little activity when all is said and done. But uh, number one, so this is contingent on Michael Jordan being the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And I would say that, you know, this is indisputable for pretty much my entire life up to a certain point. Um, You guys have heard all the talking heads debate who's better, you know, MJ or LeBron. I'm not going to pick one on this episode, but I think any reasonable basketball fan is at least open to the debate. Um, So what happens if this GOAT status is challenged? Does Jordan maintain that role because he was essentially in that role when cards got really popular? Um, Or can his airness be unseated? You know, some of you might have seen what's happened with the LeBron Topps Chrome rookies recently. They've experienced huge jumps. Um, You know, it seems kind of strange. A lot of people are attributing this to Gary Vee. You know, I can't really explain it, but I will say it doesn't look right, which leads me to my second concern. How do we know that the health of the market, or how do we know the health of the market when card prices that are supposedly at the top are being hyped, shilled, and manipulated in every which way? And I mentioned the Topps Chrome rookie, and, and you know this could be LeBron or MJ. Um, 
Some of you might not have been collecting then, but there was a major, major push around 2012 involving Jordan inserts and graded base. And a lot of people got burned on that, um, especially when Jordan and, and specifically cheaper Jordan cards seemed like a good safe entry point for the hobby for collecting or investing. And I'm probably going to talk more about this later, but the Fleer Jordan rookie has been subbed by PSA, um, and that's just PSA, nearly 17,000 times. Now, who knows how many resubs are a part of that, but 17,000. And the other companies, you know, if we add those in, I think a low safe estimate would still be in the 25,000 range. And yet that card in its worst condition sells for, you know, I want to say a PSA 1 now is maybe around $600, maybe even higher, I'd have to check, and it's still going up. And we had a boom in those rookie prices in the last 10 years. They stabilized just a little, and now they're climbing fast again. Now, all things considered, they are definitely sought after. There are new people coming into the hobby that want that card or coming back to the hobby that want that card. But that card is not scarce. So the more that I think about it, Jordan cards might be a great indicator of health in the hobby, but in the inverse. Because there's a lot of money in the hobby right now, but I don't necessarily equate money and health. Now, um, I wanted to get another opinion on this, so I reached out to my friend Jason, and he sent me a number of thoughts as well. You know, I'm going to read a few of them on here, and then I'm going to move on to, to the main topic, but... Um, so Jason, when I asked him, he, he sent me an email and he said, you know, the idea that MJ is the foundation of the hobby is an interesting statement. I don't necessarily disagree with it. I also believe Jordan is the exception to the hobby. For example, he is from the leader of the junk wax era. The junk wax era is full of his inserts and base cards. They seem to be the only cards of value in 99% of the releases, even with hall of fame caliber rookies. There are inserts that accompany Jordan in some nice, scarce insert sets, and Jordan is the only card that has any value or substance. Um, so, for example, he he listed the um, Fleer inserts from 89, from 90, from 91, um, and then Jordan against guys like Tim Hardaway, Sean Kemp, or Mitch Richmond. Um, he also gave another example, the um, 1997 Ultra Court Masters inserts. Um he basically said that the majority of the cards can be found in, you know, one to three dollar boxes, while MJ is worth hundreds raw and thousands graded. So um, Jason went on to add some interesting thoughts regarding Jordan being a sort of um, a, baro a barometer for hobby health. So real quick, he continued. Um, he said Jordan is the exception to the rule. So when Penny Hardaway, Grant Hill, and Yao Ming inserts and rookies are selling well. That's a true sign of a healthy market. Again, refer to the 2012 Jordan insert fiasco. Jordan inserts are the exception to the hobby rules. His inserts are no more rare than Shaquille O'Neal's or Hakeem Olajuwon in any given set. Yet Jordan is the hobby exception. And when the other cards have a strong value 20 years later, and it's proven to be organic, then we sleep well knowing the hobby is safe and flourishing. Okay, end quote. Um, so that's just something else to consider. I wanted to, you know, add my thoughts, give somebody else's thoughts as well, you know, throw out some different viewpoints. I want to thank Jason for sending me those thoughts. Um, now, look, I know a lot of people love Jordan cards. I also want to look out for those people. 
because I know that those cards have been hyped up quite a bit in the past, and it's no secret that many people regard him as the greatest player of all time. Um, Post-retirement, his brand has really helped his legacy. Um, I think I've mentioned on here before that I'm a teacher, and I teach middle school, and some people don't have any idea how much something like um, the video game 2K really helps to carry on that legacy, but it does. And um, so there should be plenty of organic growth when it comes to these cards because people are still finding out about him and watching highlights and wearing his clothes and wearing his brand. But maybe we just need to pump the brakes every now and then on the cards. Um, Like I said, that's something to think about. Um, And I know the guys, or maybe I should say guys and gal, sorry, Christina, um, at House of Jordans, they, you know, they have a real appreciation for the cards themselves. And I look forward to hearing their thoughts on this on their next episode. Okay, Um, so all of that is to say we're having this conversation, though, because Michael Jordan cards are very important. Whether you think they're the foundation or not, you can't deny that they're very important. So I'm not here to downplay Michael Jordan cards. Um, Today I want to dive in, though, and I want to talk about Jordan rookie cards specifically, which have played a huge role in the hobby. But there's a little bit of debate that revolves around those as well. And that centers around the question, what is the true Michael Jordan rookie card? And I know there's some real oddball stuff out there like newspaper clippings and stickers and such. Yes, I know about the Nike promo card, um, which those of you that have seen that in person, you know it's not a standard sized card. But there are really only two candidates in the race here. And that's the 1984-85 Star Company, Michael Jordan, card 101. Um, And then there's the ever-popular 1986-87 Fleer, um, number 57. So in this episode, I'm going to look at the logistics of both sets. I'm going to look at some common issues for them, talk about reception, talk about counterfeits. And then I'm going to ask and discuss the question, what makes a card a true rookie card? So there are a lot of good resources out there. And before I begin, I wanted to note that I'll be drawing from several places. Um, Now, one really good stop for Jordan Rookie Info would be a website called jordancards.com. So once again, that's www.jordancards.com. I don't run that site. I don't even know who runs that site. I've never talked to them, but I appreciate the work they've done, and I want to pass that along to you guys as well. Okay, so let's dive in, and let's start with one that some of you might not be as familiar with, and that's the 1984-85 star card. And this card is labeled by a lot of people as an XRC, which stands for an extended rookie card. We saw this a lot with baseball cards in the 80s, and the idea was if a card couldn't be pulled from standard distribution, you know, let's say it was produced as part of a hobby-exclusive factory set or something, um, then it was an extended rookie. And this included popular sets like Tops, Traded, and um, Fleer Update. And they thought that a true rookie should be widely distributed throughout traditional sales outlets. Well, for a while, they lumped the Star Company in that XRC group as well. And I want to—I should mention that XRC, that phrase or that terminology, was coined by Beckett. So they came up with that. It's not—you know—that didn't come from somewhere else. That came from Beckett. And, you know, for a time when when they said something, then all of a sudden it became the kind of the norm for the hobby. Um, Now, when they lumped um, Star into that XRC group, distribution played a big role in that. And as I talked about in my very first episode, 
The NBA went through several licensing shifts in the 1980s. Top star, um, stopped producing basketball cards after the 81-82 season. Fleer didn't grab the license until 1986, but there was a company in between that was fully licensed through both the NBA and his Players Association, and that was the Star Company. And, um, you know, while I'm giving out resources or while I'm sharing resources, I should say, there's an excellent resource out there for all things Star Company that I recommend checking out. Um, It can be found at www.basketballgold.com. Once again, that's basketballgold.com. It talks uh, all things Star Company. Okay, so I mentioned distribution. Um, So then, you know, that kind of begs the question, how could you get these Star Company cards? Well, um, you could buy them at hobby shops and team sets or subsets for some events like the All-Star Game. And they were bagged up, and these were called poly bags. And you could order, you know, and sometimes you could order these sets by mail out of catalogs. And in some locations, you could purchase them at games. Um, the common figure that I've seen thrown around a lot is that there were around three to 4,000 copies of each team set that were produced in a given year. They sold them by team sets, um, even though they were part of a larger set. Uh, Now, had there been more demand at the time, this number would have gone up quite a bit, but there just wasn't the need to print more. And Jordan's first card was in the 1984-85 set, and when you added all of the teams together from this set, there were 288 cards in this release, and as I mentioned earlier, Jordan was card 101. Now, uh, there are some perceived issues with star cards, and, and for the most part, they're all linked Um, None of them are mutually exclusive. And the first of these involves the actual printing and cutting of the cards. A lot of people don't realize that that star cards were not printed at a a giant factory. Instead, they were printed up in two different print shops. Um, The card stock is a little bit different. Some of the cards have a lot of surface issues. The centering on some of them aren't very good. Uh, Just to give you an example, and this comes from 1983, so keep in mind the Jordan was from 84, so this is from a year before, Um, but this is on the the company's Wikipedia page. It points out that, quote, several of the teams in that set, most notably the Boston Celtics and the Dallas Mavericks, saw less than 25% of their printed product reach the market due to problems with ink saturation and miscutting of the cards, end quote. Uh, with that being said, there's a lot, uh, there's a number of challenges presented for companies that decide to grade star company cards, and you know that's outside of just your everyday scammer just trying to reprint them on his or her own. Uh, one challenge is that there are also some copies of star cards floating around out there called Type Two copies, and according to the Basketball Gold website, um, quote, Type Twos were preprint samples, printed off register. Um, that were meant to be destroyed, but were stolen by two print shop employees, and they are considered counterfeits, end quote. Um, These surfaced as early as the late 80s. So when PSA was a younger grading company in the 90s, they unknowingly graded some Type 2 cards. And the sources that I've read say that once they learned that they had authenticated some of these, they stopped grading all-star company cards entirely. So that explains why you're not going to see a lot of star cards slabbed by PSA. Um, In this case, it's not that people prefer BGS over PSA. PSA won't even grade them. And there are a lot of star company fans that have brought this up to Joe Orlando before. We talked about him on this show. 
you can guess how that turned out. Um, the owner of the basketballgold.com website is pretty harsh uh, in his criticism of PSA, and rightfully so. You can go on and read all of that. It's pretty lengthy on the site's unanswered questions section. But um, they basically argue that if PSA is an elite and full-service grading company, it should grade the cards. And then they also went on to express that they feel like Joe Orlando is making excuses for why he they won't grade them and that the company is really just trying to avoid the issue altogether. There is some credence to this stance, though, because a, a couple of other grading companies have sought out help in the form of a gentleman named Steve Taft. And Mr. Taft was an original dealer of Star Company basketball cards, and he's become the expert when it comes to these cards. He's trained officials at BGS um, and also GAI to properly authenticate these cards. And, and real quick, I haven't talked about GAI before. I've talked about some of the other companies, but um, GAI was uh, Global Authentication Incorporated, and they were the smallest of the four major grading companies. For a while, they were the only company authenticating sealed packs and star cards. And at, um, at one point, though, they filed for bankruptcy and things got really messy. Um, then you had just two different versions of the company out there. You had a California-based company that was the original company um, pre-bankruptcy. They had a, a silver label. And then there was an Iowa-based company that emerged after um, with a white label. I would be more trusting of the silver label, but I can't emphasize enough. If you're buying GAI stuff in general, you really, really need to do your research. Um, there's some legitimate stuff out there, but you just you can't just assume one way or the other. All right, so that takes care of PSA and GAI. And the sources that I have tell me that SGC will not grade them. That might be something that I could ask them about in the future. Um, I am still chatting a little bit with SGC. Um, but for right now, then, that leaves us with BGS. And BGS began grading these cards in December of 2008. And a lot of people like that, you know, that there's just one company grading them because it, all of the information, the population, all that info is in one spot. They like the subgrades. They like the Beckett cases. Um, I do want to give kudos to Beckett for getting the help of Steve Taft and, and taking this on. You know, I think that's the responsible thing to do in grading these cards and in you know, not running from authentication, but if that's your industry, you try and get better. So, you know, in that regard, and I, I've been very critical of them in the past, but when it comes to star cards, kudos to Beckett. Um, but before I move on from star, I want to talk about one major misconception that I've seen regarding this company. And a lot of people are very hesitant to deal with Jordan, with the uh, Jordan star rookie because of, of a controversy in the company's history and you know where the owner of the company printed unauthorized NBA cards and, and distributed them through the Shop at Home network. Um, this was in the late 90s, but I believe it was 1997. But he basically printed a new set that never existed to begin with and then backdated them to 1985. And if you want to know more about that, you can Google it. Um, if you just type in Shop at Home scandal, you know, Star Company Shop at Home, um, and you know, you'll get all sorts of information, but it should be made very clear that because he was printing a set that never existed to begin with, it doesn't include the 84, 85 Jordan rookie card. So, um, you shouldn't be concerned over that controversy in this card. Okay. 
Um, so that takes care of the star rookie for now. Um, I'll come back a um, little bit later with a comparison at the end of the episode, but it's time to move on to the one that every collector seems to have some level of familiarity with, and that's the 1986-87 Fleer rookie. And I've talked a little bit about this set before, but this was the first time that Fleer um, had made NBA license cards since 1961. It was a 132 card set with 11 stickers. The stickers were one per pack. Um, you know, a lot of you might not know that boxes in 1986 were not sealed in the traditional sense that you'd see today. That you know, there was no such thing as a factory sealed basketball box. Um, the rookie class was very strong, you know, considering we hadn't seen actual pack inserted rookies since the early 80s. Um, 86 Fleer gave us rookies for Barkley, Malone, Drexler, um, Dominique Wilkins, Isaiah Thomas, Hakeem, Joe Dumars, um, James Worthy, and Chris Mullen, and you know, the list goes on. Um, and more importantly, you could usually find three to four Michael Jordan rookies in every box. That is, if you were buying them. Uh, but in 1986, people weren't. And if you go to any show that has um, longtime dealers at it, you know, ask them about this set. Because it seems like everyone I run to run into that was doing shows at this time, they all have some sort of story about, you know, selling off Jordan cards for next to nothing or passing on these boxes. You can find these stories online as well. Um, and I copy and pasted one post here where somebody said, um, quote, I remember in 1986-87 being set up at a show and having a guy roll through who had some et- extra wax to sell to the dealers. Every dealer in the show passed on 1986 Fleer basketball cases at $135 per case. Okay, it seems crazy now, but um, just there was no desire for this set then. And um, as a testament to how unpopular this set really was, there was a poster on the um, Collector's Universe forum that relayed a conversation that he had with a high-level FLIR executive in the late 90s. And the executive claimed that, you know, he's saying, and, I, you know, we can't verify this, but he's saying that he thinks there were 250,000 of each card printed in the set. And now, more importantly, he said, because of the product's disappointing reception on the market, they cut production in half for 1987 and 88. Well, um, in 2019, this set stands as one of the most collected sets ever. So what changed? Um, I would say for the most part, the popularity of the hobby paralleled the popularity of the sport as a whole. Um, The NBA still wasn't all that popular in the early to mid-80s, but it was slowly gaining steam. And the commissioner then, who was David Stern, um, he was our commissioner up until recently when Adam Silver took over. But he made it a point to begin to market individual stars instead of teams. And I would say that this started with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Um, you can actually read about that in a book from Jackie McMullen um, titled When the Game Was Ours. I, you know, I read that probably, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. It's a pretty good book. Uh, well, then this continued with Jordan. And he became very marketable in the late 80s and early 90s. And sports cards were, of course, a big part of this movement. Um, And also baseball and baseball cards were gaining in popularity and basketball cards followed suit because now they had their big star to build around. 
Um, but along the way, there were a few other big rookies that helped push things along, like David Robinson and Shaquille O'Neal. And I talked about how the Star Company and Fleer both scaled back production at one point because interest was low. Well, now, as Jordan emerged and then as these rookie cards came onto the scene, um, now the interest was much higher, so they ramped up production, and quite a bit. And as people became interested in current cards and Jordan cards specifically, they wanted the most iconic card, which for a lot of people was the 1986-87 Fleer Michael Jordan rookie. And, you know, you see the same thing with a guy like LeBron today. I've talked about his chromes. Well, his chrome rookies, they've always been popular. You know, I think um, his rookie season, they were selling for about $50 raw. Um, But current LeBron, you know, you have your current LeBrons, you have Prism, you have Silvers, and so on. But people want his most iconic rookie cards. We've talked about this before. Well, the exquisite RPA is somewhat of a unicorn. You know, good luck finding one, getting one. Um, getting into that circle. I've talked all about that on another episode, but there are plenty of Topps Chrome rookies out there to choose from. So this Jordan rookie that has quite a few copies became highly collectible, and the set grew in popularity with it. Um, Now, I would classify the growth that I've referred to thus far, at least for Michael Jordan, um, as organic growth, but not surprisingly, with this being one of the most coveted cards in the hobby, there's been a fair amount of manipulation that surrounds it as well. And I really, you know, I want to refer to it. I don't want to do a deep dive into it right now. Um, and actually, I think Adam, who's been on this show several times, I think he did a podcast about this a few years ago, and he talked about um, a theory that he had with um, we call we can call it a buyer's club. Uh, now, I haven't listened to it since then. That was several years ago, but it might be worth checking out if you can still find it. You know, that will give you another perspective on things. Um, either way, though, we've seen these trends cycle back again and again and create a bit of a pricing bubble. You know, maybe you log on to a, um, a card forum like Blowout and there's a handful of Jordan rookie threads on the first couple of pages. Now, there's nothing wrong with talking about a card. And yes, this is one of the most you know popular cards of all time. But when you see these threads pop up more frequently than normal, and then prices go up at the same time, be careful. We see this pattern with a lot of the more popular cards, whether it be Curry, Durant, or whatever. A group of people will show up, they'll show off, they'll speculate, you know, oh, I bought this card because I think it's going to reach X amount of dollars in X amount of time. Then when there are new sales records, they post a link to it. They stick around for a while. They try and feed and promote this cycle as much as they can. You know, sometimes they repeat it or then they'll move on to another player. You know, if you stick around long enough and you look for it, you'll see that. Now, the difference, though, between them and a lot of people that get sucked in is number one, they're initiating a lot of this, and then number two, they know when to sell. So it, you know, it's nothing new. So please, be careful. Um, in addition to you know that style of market manipulation, another thing to look out for that I want to talk about would be counterfeits. And if you browse any type of social media, you've seen the post, real or fake, right? Real or fake? Is this real? I saw this on Craigslist, or my neighbor showed me this card. Is this real or fake? Um, there are some really bad fakes. You know, those are easy to pick out. Um, but then there are some really good ones. 
Um, and for those of you that are totally against buying raw, you know, I've seen people say, well, you know, you should don't buy a Jordan rookie unless it's slabbed at this point. Well, please keep in mind that number one, all rook, all Jordan rookies were raw at one point. And no, not everyone knows to grade them or authenticate them. Um, also, a slab doesn't necessarily mean your card is authentic either. And if you want a recent example of that, well, look no further than this year's National. And look no further than the Dave and Adams booth. And Dave and Adams is a, you know, a highly respected company when it comes to selling cards. And they had two PSA 9 Jordan rookies at their booth. Um, those rookies were both purchased by different individuals. And each respective buyer then took them to PSA, who was at the show, and they both came back as fake. And now, this one wasn't PSA's fault because the slabs had been tampered with, the cards and the labels had both been um, replaced or swapped out or something to that effect. So, you know, PSA never really deemed them authentic to begin with. It's just somebody found a way to, you know, emulate a PSA card and a PSA slab. So just be careful. Um, now, I don't blame people for buying slapped cards, though. It's nice to have that professional opinion when it comes to authentication. But the best way to ensure that you're buying something that's legitimate is to study and to do your homework. Because there are plenty of resources out there to help you distinguish a real card from a fake. And, um, you know, if, if, you can't, if you aren't sure about a card, then don't buy it. Because you need to find one of these sources online uh, and you really need to see it. You know, I'm going to do my best to talk about it, but um, there are good resources out there. I know Cardboard Connection has a good one. You know, obviously I can't provide the visuals here, but I'm going to do the best I can to quickly go over some things you need to look out for. Okay. Um, now, if you're in the market for a Raw Jordan, I would suggest you also get a just a common from one of the lesser players in the 86-87 Fleer set first. You know, as a Pacers fan, I would say maybe Clark Kellogg or Wayman Tisdale, but um, it doesn't really matter, okay? But this lets you examine the stock, the quality, um, and the printing of the card in person. Now, unfortunately, you won't always have these Jordans in person. A lot of times you're looking at a, a blurry Craigslist picture or something, which that should be a red flag in itself. Um, so you have to be able to work from pictures. So you need clear, good pictures. Okay, so let's start off with the front of the card. Okay, this should go without saying, but you want to examine the overall clarity of the card. Look at the text. Does the blue around the nameplate pop or is it fuzzy? Is it blurry? Um, are the letters the right thickness? Are they crisp and clear? If it's one you can look at in person, get some type of magnifying device um, and make sure that the thin black line that surrounds the yellow area is solid. Make sure you can read every letter of Chicago on Jordan's jersey. Um, then you know, move up the card and, and take a look at the uh, FLIR logo itself. It should be crisp and clear. The color should be very distinct. Um, the arrow on the bottom, I believe it's the bottom right of the logo, should be a different yellow or gold than you see um, in the box that says Premier right by it. So this difference should be obvious. If it's even debatable, you're looking at a fake. Okay, um, so that goes for the front. Those are just some things to look for. Well, flip your card over 
And there are several things to look for on the back as well. So start with the Bulls logo and look at the eyes. Okay, you might have to magnify it um, or zoom in if you're looking on the computer, but you should be able to see the white outline around the pupils. Um, this section has bleeding on a lot of the fakes. And then when you're looking at the text of the back, um, look at a scoring average. You should be able to see the decimal in the 27.2 without any devices to help you. That should be clear. Um, look at the R and the trademark symbol at the top right of the card and then the C at the copyright in the bottom left. Both of these should be easy to read. You should see spaces where there should be space. Um, and then finally in the bottom right where it has the Players Association logo, it should be clear. And as part of this logo, there's a, a basketball built into that logo. You should be able to see the lines on the basketball. Um, so you can see the different panels of the ball then. If it's just a solid fill, well, you've got a fake. Okay, um, so that's just a few tips for you. Um, there's really a lot more that could be said about the 86 Fleer rookie. You know, I could go in so many different directions, but I have one more segment that I really want to get to. Um, I've talked about both the 84, 85 star rookie and the Fleer rookie, but now I want to pose a question that's been debated quite a bit over the years. What is the true Michael Jordan rookie? And um, I know the one that I see people chasing the most, you know, is obviously the 86, 87 Fleer. Um, I'm not going to take a stance on this either way. Um, in fact, I've had a couple people ask me about my Jordan rookie, and I'll tell you, well, when I shopped for a Jordan rookie um, a little while ago, I actually ended up with a 1961 Wilt Chamberlain instead. So I don't own a Jordan rookie. But if I was shopping for one, I wouldn't tell you which one, because I want to present an alternative view, um, give you guys some options, and I want you to think about it. Because this is your collection, this is your investment, whatever you know, you're choosing to, uh, if you're getting into Michael Jordan, whatever you're choosing to do it for. Um, in order to guide this last talking point, I'm going to use pieces of a conversation from JordanCards.com um, where they've decided that the star company, uh, that card, that it should be considered the true rookie as opposed to it being an extended rookie card. Now, once again, before I, I talk about their article, I want to give them credit because they're an incredible resource when it comes to Michael Jordan cards, and I really enjoyed this piece in particular. And um, some of the contributing voices to this article included Steve Taft, who I mentioned earlier, and then also collectors Lou Costable and Jarrett Kahn. And at the start of their conversation, they created a set of criteria that determines whether a card is a rookie card or not. And they're primarily concerned about three things. Number one, um, this card should be a player's, it should be a player's first appearance on a card. Number two, the company that makes it has to have a license. And then number three, it has to be part of a regular set. Um, so not surprisingly, the star rookie checks off every box for them. And this set came out in December of 1984, not 1986. So it is the player's first appearance on a card. Um, star held an exclusive NBA license from 83 to 86. So the company did have a license. And then finally, all of the team sets come together to make the base set with Jordan card, with the Jordan card being 101. So it, you know, it wasn't like a box set though. Yes, you knew what cards were coming in that sealed team bag, but it wasn't the entire set. Now, some people in the process have also criticized the print run 
But this article argues, you know, it, it wasn't the fault of the star company that interest was low in basketball cards at the time. And then taking this point one step further, they note that LeBron has several key rookie cards, which are considered the base cards in a particular set, numbered to 99. Well, you guys know that. You listen to this show. Obviously, the big one is the exquisite RPA, numbered to 99. Um, and then finally, this um, this article closes by acknowledging the 86-87 Fleer rookie and making it clear that they're not trying to downgrade its status, um, but their argument for the star card is pretty convincing, and they end with this quote. They said, um, this card is rare, condition-sensitive, historic, has an eventful past, and truly shows Jordan in his first season of the NBA. What more could you want from a rookie card? End quote. Um, so that was really just a summary of that article. I encourage you to check it out in full at www.jordancards.com. Um, they put in a lot of hard work and it shows. All right. Um, so there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that episode today. Um, Jordan people, that one was for you. Um, I will do my best this week to post pictures of some of the cards that I've talked about on this, uh, on this episode on my Instagram which is at Wax Museum Podcast, and I'd love to hear you guys weigh in. Is there a true Michael Jordan rookie card? Is there one that you favor over the other? Um, you know, is there a need to establish a true rookie card? You know, some of you might think, well, there's not even really a need to. You know, take to my social media and state your case. Um, I also want to take a moment here at the end to plug another show that I'm going to be on soon. I've been talking with Drew from the show, uh, Let Me Get That Potograph, and he wants me to come on this weekend and chat some about some of the recent RPA stuff that I've been talking about and some of the grading stuff. If all goes according to plan and we can get that one recorded, you know, we're both trying to work out our schedules. I think that show will be up either Sunday or Monday, so be on the watch for that. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.